Hi, Tony Simmons here, and welcome to this week's episode of Discipline. Anyone involved in B2B sales, whether a business or a salesperson, must listen to this podcast. The sales world is rapidly changing, and to succeed in a new world of digital platforms and massively changed buyer behaviour, you need to adapt. Graham Hawkins, founder of rapidly growing business Sales Tribe, joins me this week, and he adeptly explains why we're seeing massive shifts in sales output and performance. We discuss the new engagement paradigms for B2B sales, and we also discuss the new competencies required to perform in a modern sales world. Enjoy the episode. CEO of Sales Tribe, founder Transform Sales International, best-selling author with your book, The Future of the Sales, Sales Profession, achieving Amazon bestseller status in four countries. Welcome to Discipline. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I should also mention that you've uh, done an MBA and a, a leadership course from the London Business School. Yep. I mean, you've made me feel completely inadequate <laughs> this morning. <laughs> well, thank you, Tony. Um, Yes, look, the, um, the, the one common theme throughout my career is that any time um, things have gone up to that next level, it's been as a result of my own personal development. So going and doing the MBA, electing to go to London Business School and the other bits and pieces that I've done have always led to something positive. So, yeah, 100%. Let's um, start today, if I may, with the discussion about Sales Tribe. Yeah. Um, you started this company about the same time I started Marketplace Ventures. And our paths have crossed before. Yes. Um, because you pitched Sales Tribe to me at Marketplace Ventures as well. Yep. But it was kind of a, it was a partly formed idea, but you, you definitely had a vision and a direction. And the first time around, I loved it. Yep. I wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. And might have advised you from memory to um, get some customers before spending all your money on a software platform. Yes, you did. And um, you then came back, possibly wanted to, get involved in some capital raising yep and i may have said it was probably still too early yep i probably wanted too much equity <laughs> so bring me up to speed on your incredible growth and story over the last few years yeah look you're right it was um when we first met it was early and we did have this kind of rough vision and look as you know that vision came out of the research phase of writing my book um it became very obvious to me that the world was changing um in the profession that i'd spent my entire career which is b2b sales and I started to notice back in sort of the late 2000 or the noughties, you know, 2008, 2009, that things were changing. So fast forward to 2012, I go and do an MBA. I study research um, and, and a research project in biobehaviour. And that really um, opened my eyes to where things are going with, you know, the accelerated tech that we're seeing and bio-self-service and automation and artificial intelligence and all of that. So... I came away from that research project with this idea for a book and then I got immersed in writing the book. But it was during that research with the book that I started to see a completely different role for the traditional B2B salesperson in the future. And you had worked for quite some time in that role. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my entire career. And were, were colleagues around you and yourself included frightened by the changes emerging? Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, you know, I was two and a half decades into a B2B sales career thinking that I knew it all. I, you know, I've done every sales training course there was imaginable. I'd read every book. 
um, you know, so I was kind of the, the quintessential old dog sales guy who had yeah. been around the bush, you know, yeah. a few times. And, um, yeah, I just realised that, gee, what I've learned, everything I've learned has now changed because now buyers have access to information, whereas in the past they didn't. So the salesperson's role was fundamentally to go out and, you know, give information inform to Inform the, inform. the potential buyer. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so during this research and during writing the book, I started to realise, wow, okay, the role that I once knew is now almost 180 degrees different. Yeah, wow. So started to think, what does that mean for people who are my age, mid-40s at that point, who've been on this journey of, you know, B2B sales and marketing and all that kind of thing? What does it mean for us in the future? And then I started to see, you know, some worrying trends and research from people like Forrester and Gartner that was saying that the B2B sales role by 2020, this was back in 2015, they said that by 2020, there would be about 23% of the world's B2B salespeople gone. Wow. So that's how rapidly they were seeing the erosion of that role. And that's because the internet's facilitated this ability for anyone to, I suppose, self-educate, become aware of the different products. and Correct. They're not getting salespeople in to tell them about the product. They're getting them in to pitch about the cost, the relationship, the, exactly. the sort of after-sales service. The, yeah. They don't need this sort of pre-sales engagement anymore. 100%. Yep. Um, everyone, all of us, whether it's B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter. We're doing our research first now. And so, you know, quite often the salesperson is turning up just to give a price. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not careful in a vendor like that, where you're turning up constantly after the decision's already been made, they've got their preferred vendor selected in column A, column B and column C are column fodder, they're just making up the numbers, right? So the salesperson has to be really conscious of that now. So the role's changed a lot. Yeah. Um, and the... The role that I've done for my entire career is now, you know, almost unrecognisable in a way. The old, the old idea of, you know, the um, quota crusher, smooth talking, charismatic persuader. Yes. You know, of the of the eighties and nineties. Yes. Those days are finished. Is it just a used car salesman in a three piece suit? Yes. Yeah. yeah very much so. And yeah. we were taught. You know, I'm, I'm embarrassed now when I look back about some of the techniques and whatnot that we were taught, and that we used. And you know, I'm hand on heart now. I I look at what we, we used to do in the old days as, um, as cringeworthy yeah. because it was all about interrupting the buyer and then pushing the buyer through a sales process. Not a buying journey, no such thing back then as a buying journey. It was about the sales process. Yeah. So I'm in charge. I'm the sales guy and I'm going to push you until I can close you. I'm going to overcome your objections and I'm going to you know, close you as quickly as I can. You know? And that was the, the mindset. Yes. That's changed. Yeah. And I mean... You know, it's fascinating for you because you're in that and not only have you um, seen the change, but you've transcended your role to one of um, a CEO of a company that's mm. whole raison d'etre is to educate people about this change and yeah. train them. But in doing that, you've become a completely different type of salesperson. Yes. Um, having to sell people on this new world that you've seen yep. and your own products and your own buyer journey I mean, how has that been for you, uh, doing that? Oh, it's been fascinating. I've learned more in the last five years, Tony, than I've probably learned in the rest of my career, to be honest. Um, to go back to the initial point about the research in, in, in writing the book, you know, you and I talked offline about the fact that when you get to your 40s, everyone's got enough experience in their history to have all this thought leadership in their heads, you know, and all this experience that they can, they can start to share. And when I saw 
the way the role was evolving and the way business was evolving, not just the sales role, but business in general, I started to see an opportunity to build a business called Sales Tribe that can help salespeople yep. with capability uplift. Yes. But then also help businesses with sales acceleration and getting better at you know the modern approach to sales. And in that in that journey, you're quite right. I've kind of been so immersed in pushing out content and thought leadership that I've become now like this um, almost an influencer in the sales space. Yeah, it's extraordinary transformation. Yeah, we were talking offline. I've witnessed it firsthand. Yeah, and um, I've seen this sort of dipping the toe in the influencer type. Um, segment where you were creating content yep. and that has been right on the money uh, in terms of how the sales journey happens or the buyer journey happens now it starts with a piece of content that intrigues you yes yeah correct yeah it was an interesting um, ancillary benefit if you like of the journey that I got on was that I started to see what was happening and I started to really think about it you know, deeply where, where things were going because I was concerned, frankly, about my own career. You know, would I make it through to retirement? Would I be able to stay in a sales role as an older person? Um, you know, they talk about the journeyman salesperson and they're, you know, almost a sort of a humorous stereotype now, you know, the old guy's still selling. The death of a salesman 2.0. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, uh, because I started to see, okay, well, the buyers now over here, we have to adjust how we sell because when buyers change how they buy, sellers have to change how they sell. Yeah. It's that simple. So because I sort of started to head off in that direction and started to push this message out on platforms like LinkedIn, it didn't take long until I started to build a bit of a following because what I was saying was resonating with so many people. Yes. So, you know chipped away at it, chipped away at it, building network, producing content. The two go hand in hand. The more content I produce, the more the network builds. And all of a sudden, I've got, you know, 10,000 followers or what is now 30,000 followers, you know, four years later. Yeah, amazing. Incredible. And so, yeah, I, I got encouraged, obviously, by the fact that there, are, there there is an audience out there that wants to hear some of these insights and, and that are struggling with these same things. So... The message resonated, and, and the more it resonated, the more encouraged and more, I guess, emboldened I got. Well, let me let me tap into that that emboldened state. Mm. I mean, you could have retrained, you could have reskilled, and said, "I'm going to be a gun salesperson in the new world." Yep. What was it that made you say, "I want to actually start a business and actually have a lot more control of my own destiny"? Was there some clues in your youth that uh, led you to this entrepreneurial start? I think, it was, I think I was fundamentally always um, an entrepreneur at heart. I think most salespeople, particularly when you start, as I did, in a commission-only role where, you know, you don't sell, you don't eat kind of thing. Bit of hustle. Bit of hustle. There yeah. was a bit of that. I, I, you know, was brought up to work hard. And so I think I was always that way inclined. But really the, the catalyst for me was going and doing the MBA. Uh, as an early 40s, I think it was 42 at the time. Yes. And that really just opened my eyes about how I want to spend the next 20 years of my career not working in the corporate world for US software companies but instead <laughs> running my own thing. Um, and what was it in that NBA that sort of, again, gave you the confidence that you could, you could do that? I think um, two things, not just um, the academic part of it. I mean, at 42 years of age, you've experienced enough business to understand the basics of business, but for me, the MBA put that, that theoretical um, 
framework and wrapper around everything I'd learned. But it also started to open my eyes to how to leverage a network properly. Yeah, right. And up until that point, despite being in sales all this time, I really didn't give much thought to this idea of curating a network that you can leverage properly, yes. an open network. Yeah. I think um, I've said this to you before. I think we, we spend most of our careers in an industry and we get to know all the people in the industry. Quite often that's in a geographic region or a city. Yep. And we have what is effectively a closed network. The moment I realised that there's a big wide world of, you know, 630 million people on LinkedIn, for example, and a small, tiny percentage of those people might be interested in your message, then, you know, it all opens up. Yes. It's a very different way to look at it. Yeah. But the MBA doesn't teach you about risk. I mean, you've, you've gone into an entrepreneurial journey in your 40s. Yep. Seen potentially the writing on the wall for your career. Yep. Um, but starting with, you know, some level of savings, uh, you've acquired assets, whatever, yep. you've then said, I'm going to risk it all for a couple of years and try and make this work. Yep. How have you dealt with that? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, that, that's uh, at the heart of being an entrepreneur, isn't it? Risk-reward. Um, yeah, look, I, I think because I spent the time studying the research in the MBA and then writing the book, it, it became so clear and so obvious, this problem that we're facing, yeah. B2B people, salespeople are facing, yeah. that it just, the magnitude of that opportunity became so real for me that I thought, well, I just have to do it. Yeah. You know, regardless of what the cost is initially to get this thing moving, I just have to go and do it. So you've taken the risk and then you've, you've seen clearly what you believe is the opportunity, but there's always a challenge connecting the opportunity with buyers. Um, has that journey been as easy as you thought it would be going into it, seeing so clearly this opportunity? It's interesting. It's a, good, it's a great question. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that old thing about all very well to identify a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? You know, that old thing. <laughs> yeah. Can you actually get people to put their hands in their pocket and buy something that you, 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 you're building? My biggest challenge um, has not been that so much. There's, there's appetite. In fact, in some cases, there's desperation out there not just with salespeople who are now turning over every 16.8 months. So that's the average sales tenure. This is in tech uh, sort of... Across the board. Yeah, right. B2B salespeople, the average sales tenure, 16.8 months. I mean, in Australia, there's just not enough companies to go around then. That's right. So we've got a revolving door of sales staff. Yeah. Um, according to Harvard Business Review, 63% of those B2B salespeople are failing to meet or exceed quota. So in other words, they're failing to hit their numbers. That's a massive number now. When I first started, you know, you, it was an exception if you didn't make your number. You were given a quota and you worked hard and you got your number. You made your commission and everyone was happy. Nowadays, the vast majority of salespeople are failing. There's a lot of salespeople, quite frankly, out there today that are fearful and some are almost desperate. And, I, and, I, and against that backdrop of continual failure, they must also be in a, in a pretty pessimistic Personal yeah, state as well. Absolutely. Not having, go not having wins, not kicking goals. 100%. Most of them are feeling under pressure all the time now. You know, sales used to be fun in the old days. You know, you'd make your numbers and you'd go to club at the end of the year. And you know, it was a, <laughs> there was, you know, there was growth markets everywhere you looked, particularly in software where I'd spent most of my career. But now you talk to most salespeople and they're very worried, particularly as they get older. They're very worried about, you know, where's my next job coming from? Yeah. So... To go back to the original question, 
in in that instance where there's a lot of um, people who are worried, it's not difficult for me to create products that will you know that they will buy effectively because you know they they they're compelled to do something. The motivation's high. On the business side, um, there are lots of businesses struggling with sales. In fact, I said in a post recently, I've not met a single business leader that can say hand on heart that they're fully optimised when it comes to sales and marketing. Yeah. Everyone wants to do more. Yes. We all want to sell more units at a better margin in bigger volumes, right? Everybody. So when I go to businesses and I say, listen, we do sales acceleration, sales enablement, digital sales transformation, it's like, yeah, come on in and talk to us. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, and what about then the, the sort of idea that uh, you could solve a problem with a, with a tech platform? I mean, I remember, again, that discussion, mm. bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, yep. entrepreneur, yep. let's build a tech pl- problem. That will be the panacea that connects uh, the customers to the solution. Yeah. True or false in your instance? Um, still true and still building towards it. Some of the advice I got from you actually in the early days um, about going out and testing and validating first, you know, build an MVP, go out and test and validate. Um, no surprise, here we are two and a half years later since we launched and we've now got some really good insights into what resonates and what doesn't. Know your customers intimately, no doubt? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Spend a lot more time knowing exactly who the right customer is, what the proposition is, how we get that proposition to market. Yeah. Early days, the, the big grand vision, you know, the big hairy audacious goal was to build a, a marketplace platform that could enable businesses to connect, you know, and, and self-serve in a DIY way to find salespeople, the right salespeople to bring into their business. So that's still where we're headed. Yes, absolutely. But, um, you know, we're, we're taking it, you know, uh, I guess, crawl, walk, run scenario. Yeah. Don't rush into it and build something that you think might work. Go and test it first. And I think, look, my view has always been when you get to the stage of then having this two-sided marketplace, you've got both sides of the marketplace connected with glue. You've got product that they know they want. You've got momentum in everything. And, you know, it's easy for someone to then come in and say, here's X number of dollars to build it out and to scale this. Yes. It's a much less riskier proposition. And for you, it's much less... For any entrepreneur, it's much less risky as Correct. well. You've got customers, you know what they like. It's the Lean Startup by uh, yeah. Eric Ries. It's the, it's the sort of seminal book for tech, uh, tech entrepreneurs, but it works. Yeah. And it's still astounding how many people don't go down that path. Don't so, follow it. Yeah. yeah, they rush in headlong. We've taken a much more cautious approach. And as, as you said at the time, you know, um, validate. I love that word. Go out and validate that people will not only... Not only that your message resonates, but they'll actually put their hand in their pocket and buy something, yeah. you know? Yeah. And when you've got that, then, then it's a matter of, okay, now let's go and raise funding and scale this thing. Yeah. So that's and, where we're at now. And then for the listeners, another thing, uh, you know, everyone thinks it's glamorous. I build some tech. I'm Mark Zuckerberg the next day and I have a, a billion-dollar IPO. Um, has the journey, is it as easy as you thought? Is it a tough life uh, being an entrepreneur, grafting away? It's what I expected, and I, um, I guess I, I always knew I've got some friends who've done it, and they all said how tough it is. So I knew it was going to be tough. It's probably tougher than I thought, to be honest. Um, you know, I think we talked about this a couple of years back, you know, the white-knuckle ride that is being an entrepreneur. You yeah. know, you're up one day, you're down the next. And one of the things I've learned is that keeping my energy levels at the right 
you know, I'm just turned 50. So keeping the energy levels up to be able to go out and perform the way I need to is critical for me. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. Well, you, it's obviously working. You don't look a day over 49, 11, 11 months and 29 <laughs> yeah. days. Yeah. That's about right. No, um, uh, yeah, that, that, that's been um, a revelation to me in that the energy levels that are required to do this versus to do a traditional corporate role are poles apart. But, and, and how much more energy does this give you than a traditional role? Exactly right. Yeah, so you've got the contrast of the adrenaline and the excitement that goes with building something that's your own, obviously, um, versus you know being stuck in the, on the corporate treadmill, so to speak. So, you know, you've got this 20 years of experience working in places like BT and these software companies. Yeah. And you said you were, you know, good at sales, everyone hit their targets. What made you good at sales? <laughs> That's a great question. I've, um, I've tried to work that out over the years um, and I keep coming back to trust. Um, I was brought up the old-fashioned way by two parents who valued reputation and integrity above all else. And I think when I approached sales with a, a very open, transparent approach, I didn't ever try to pull the wool over anyone's eyes for anything. Yeah. I think people just trusted me. And this is actually, you've hit on something that I've found challenging in sales in the past, yeah. dealing with these salespeople who you talk about who are sort of um, old-fashioned. Yep. They do have integrity, which is a, a kind of misnomer in sales, that salespeople are always trying to pull a, a swifty. That's not the case. But if you have a product that doesn't sit well within their values of integrity um, and you want them to sell it, I think that can lead to a low sales performance. 100%. Yeah. If there's, if there's a lack of congruence between you know, what you believe the product to be able to deliver, if, if you're not comfortable. For me personally, there's been a few times in my career where I just wasn't comfortable with the product, that it was delivering the value uh, against the investment that was required by the buyer, I just, I guess it came across because I didn't believe in it. And, and it's so hard I'll, to go to your network and say, buy this when 100%. it's all about trust. 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, I've mentioned my parents before, but, you know, they, they all often said that old thing about your reputation's like a book, you know, it takes a lifetime to write and five minutes to burn. So true. So I was always conscious of my reputation and my career being based on integrity. And I think that's been at the, at the heart of my, you know, any success that I've had has been based on that. But you could have become a teacher, you know, you yeah. after this uh, sales journey ended, you did your study. Yep. Um, but you wrote a book. Yes. I mean, what was in you that you thought, I, I've got a book, I've got a story to tell, or I've got something interesting that others are going to want to know? Well, I, I alluded to that before when we talked about the fact that when you get to your 40s, and you've got at least 20 years of career experience, we all forget how much knowledge we've accumulated over time. And so I got to this point where I started to get some of this information that was stored in the back of my mind out on paper. And it didn't take long before I started to realise, wow, there's a lot of info here. There's, some of it's useful, some of it's probably rubbish, but I started to realise that there's, there's some value in being able to do that. And, and it didn't take long for me to pulled together 60, 70, 80,000 words of, you know, a book. And I thought, oh, well, I'll have a go at self-publishing this book and see where it goes. Yeah. And I surprised myself. No, it went very well. Yeah, it did. It did. 
But is there, is there a sense of when you're thinking about, do I put myself out there with this information that people might go, oh, he's arrogant or oh, yeah. the other side, he's completely crazy, he's so off the mark, it's not funny. Yeah. I mean, how do you get over that 100%. emotional hurdle? Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a big one. Um, early days, I thought no one's going to be interested in what I've got to say. I'm just a sales guy from Melbourne, you know, like another 100,000 sales guys from Melbourne. But um, when you get over that initial fear and you just, you know, put it out there and, and lay yourself bare, so to speak, um, you realise that actually people admire you for having a go, first and foremost. They don't want to do it themselves, so they first of all admire the fact that you've had a go, and then most people are positive about what you're trying to do. And as long as you're not wildly off the mark, yeah, which I know I'm not, and it's research-based, you know, I, I try to make sure I keep my opinions backed by research, so it's not just me and my opinions. Yeah. Um, when people realise that there's some substance to what you're saying, they actually support you. Yeah, and it's an, it is an extraordinary thing being in our 40s and our this generation where we're, I think, quite conservative with our opinions and how yes. we put ourselves out there yes. compared to oh, millennials who oh. have grown up with this stuff and, the, you know, from day one they're putting themselves out there. Yeah. But there is a real sense of, you know, as you get older... Those sort of barriers fall away. The fear kind of dissipates, or maybe, as you say, it's uh, urgency or desperation that you go. You know what? I just don't. I don't care. I've got to do this. I've yeah. got to put myself out there. Yeah, I knew when I was doing the MBA, Tony, that um, I would have to change. You know, I could no longer keep doing what I was always doing for twenty years. I had to do something different, and part of that, quite by accident, was um, stumbling across this this knowledge that I could, I was reasonable at writing content and um, the book helped me with that. And that parlayed nicely into creating some videos and some podcasts and, you know, a content strategy that helped me get my message out to the wider audience. You were very early on um, in this content strategy, producing digestible content that led to a, uh, a buyer um, journey. Yep. Uh, very strategic, but yep. very early on, yep. one of the earlier ones I remember. Um, when did you know that this was going to be the right fit for you and this was actually going to be the way the market was going? Uh, as soon as I'd finished the book. Right. Because I had content all of a sudden. I had these chapters of this book that I'd written and I, you know, dawned on me one day. It took me a while to wake up, but I, it dawned on me I had, okay, there's these chapters that they could be a, an article each. And so I started to take some of that content and just push out long-form posts on LinkedIn and wait and see what happens. And I got the obligatory, you know, five likes or a couple of comments to begin with. And as I, as I did more of that and built my network in parallel, more people saw the content. So it all started to, you know, um, sort of mushroom up, you know. Um, so, yeah, I realised that the content side of things was very powerful because... In the context of the modern buying journey, if you think about what we talked about earlier, buyers are educating themselves first before they speak to a vendor. So what do you need to do? You need to get top of mind when they start that search yeah. or before they start that search. Yeah. Hopefully hopefully you're the person that's educating them that they've got a problem. They mightn't even know they've got a problem. Yes. They're in status quo. Yeah. Um, and you're now educating and you're now the one who's influencing before the buying journey even starts. It's completely different. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't want to come in the end of the cycle 
and be the smooth-talking, persuasive, pushy sales guy who closes you down. I want to be the guy who's adding value and educating you at the start so that you come back to me. Yes. And that shift from outbound to inbound is just so powerful. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about it, even when I started my sales journey with my own business, it is a completely different paradigm. Yeah. Completely different. 100%. And driven by social platforms, I mean, if you're not doing this in 2019, are you, uh, are you still barking up the wrong tree? Well, my opinion is yes. Yeah. My opinion is if, if you don't have a share of social voice and online presence of some sort, if you're not visible, I keep saying to my clients, visibility creates opportunity. The more visible I am, the more stuff comes my way. Yeah. It's just that simple. And I've got metrics, hard metrics on that now. And, but it's not a natural thing for, you know, people in Australia and the UK. Again, how, how does one sort of find the right voice, do you think? It's a good question. And you're right. The tall poppy syndrome here in Australia and, and you know, the the Brits are much more conservative and, and less likely to be, you know, standing up saying, hey, look at me. Um, there's a way of doing that without it coming across as, you know, arrogance or um, conceit or um, hubris or any of those things. You can, you can create a message through content that's educational and you can, you know, put that message out there in, in a forthright manner, as I do sometimes, without it being arrogance or... Or, or, you know, self-aggrandizing, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's the way I tend to try and do it. But there's the other aspect of it too, Tony, which is, you know, get with the times. As you said before, the millennials and all the young generations, Gen Y, Gen Z, that are coming through, this is normal to them. Yeah. And they're going to be the decision makers of the future exactly. if they're not already. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what was that last that I saw? 50% of the global workforce will be millennials by the end of 2020. So... 50% of the B2B buyers will be millennials. They won't be wanting some grey-haired old sales guy coming in to close them or to handle their objections. <laughs> you know what I mean? They want to see the sort of content that I'm pushing out now. They want to see the short snippets of video. They yeah. want to see the podcast, yeah. you know, this sort of stuff. Yeah. That's, what they, that's, what, that's where the world's going. Yes. So, you know, get out of your comfort zone would be my advice. Throw off the shackles of what you think was you know, the traditional way of doing things and put yourself out there. No more Glen Gary, Glen Ross. No, no <laughs> none of that. None of that. <laughs> well, let's look at Sales Tribe. Yeah. Um, it's grown very nicely, but let's start at the beginning. Give us the elevator pitch. Yeah. What we're building now um, in sort of phase two, if you like, is a DIY platform, online DIY platform for businesses to find the right sales talent and to do it themselves at a much more economical rate than they could in the past by going through traditional recruitment. Yeah. So in a way, we're disrupting recruitment. In doing so, we're also adding enormous value through sales enablement, through digital sales transformation to both the business and the salesperson. So we're upskilling both, and then we're, then we're connecting the two. So this is finally almost... A, a transformation in not just putting a bum on a seat and saying, here's some numbers, go hit them. Yep. This is starting to look at sales as a cultural fit as well. Correct. Cultural fit, competency fit. Um, it's all been very, if you think about it, it's all been very hit and miss in the past with recruitment. And, of course, recruiters love the fact that everyone's turning over 16, 16 point eight months. Yeah. yeah, of course. They feed off that dysfunction, Great. right? Great. Um, and nothing against recruiters because, you know, frankly, we've been asked to do some recruitment, find people. We do a little bit of that, but we do it in a much more value-added way. 
I don't just go into a business and say, okay, you know, here's 10 CVs, pick one. We go into the business first, we'll do a quick assessment of the business, get under the hood a little bit around what they're doing for digital and social and the modern buyer and the modern sales execution model. Then we'll turn around at the end of that assessment and say, right, what you need now going forward is a salesperson with XYZ competencies, yep. you know, digitally driven, socially connected, mobile, specialised. Yes. These are the, or this is the profile of the modern salesperson. And we will then go to the tribe, which we're cultivating in parallel, and we will find those people from the tribe. Yes. On the tribe side, what we're doing, and this is, this is what makes this a really powerful business, is that we're screening, approving, training, and certifying sales individuals. So they're a known quantity. So by the time I say to Tony, Tony, here's three people who are perfect fit for your business at a much more economical, cost-effective way of finding those people. Yeah. And then the tribe part of, of this, I mean, why was it so important to have a unified tribe? Mm. Why was it... How did you galvanise a tribe? Because, you know, immediately some people might think of cult, but I think of it as a unified people behind a, a movement. Yeah. Um, You've seen that early as a marketing strategy. Yep. Why was that necessary? Because there's a distinct lack of community when it comes to B2B sales. I've, other than LinkedIn, go and set up a profile on LinkedIn, there's been really nothing in my career that was a community where you could collaborate with individual salespeople. Um, we believe in building this tribe that, you know, I guess from a philosophical point of view, there should be no door that we can't open. There should be no question that we can answer when, when we're leveraging the wisdom of the tribe. So creating a community makes us all much more powerful, the network effects. Yep. And the bigger the tribe gets, we're at about 3,000 total now. I mean, that's a good-sized tribe. It's, it's just the beginning, too. You can take over a small country with that. <laughs> a small country of salespeople. We could. Um, but, yeah, that'll grow rapidly because more and more people are, are now getting the message about what Sales Tribe can do for them. And the primary thing we can do for the individual yep. is help them to tap into the hidden job market, the jobs that are not advertised. 80%, Tony, of the world's jobs are filled through the hidden job market. Yeah, 80%. Right. I know someone. Someone's looking for yeah. someone. Correct. Yeah. Um, we all typically, well, I always have to with my own my own roles as sales leader in various businesses, you always go, okay, we've got a, an open headcount for a sales role. Who do we know? So we always go to that inner circle of our own network. But once that's been exhausted, then you're out to the recruiters and you're advertising. And that only makes up 20% of the jobs. So in other words, 80% of jobs are filled without ever being advertised. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And what about the, the, the people, these people facing displacement? Uh, they come to the tribe. Are they aware of their own destiny? Have they all seen the writing on the wall? They're all feeling it more and more, and it's um, you know it's it's very obvious to a lot of them now who are in this cycle of job hopping. I call it the death spiral because you know you might have been the the big star in the big corporation, and then you take a step down, and then you six months and you're out of work, and you can't. I had a guy say to us the other day, "I've applied for seventy six jobs." And he hasn't heard back from one of them. And this is a, an experienced salesperson. And what happens is you just continue to get pushed down further and further. And, you know, ageism is real. Once you get to late 40s, you're now being superseded by the, the younger model. Yep. The millennials are coming through. Yep. So salespeople are feeling the effects of this. By the time they get to the tribe, they know they need capability uplift. Yep. 
they need help. And then, and then they've got a group of people who can say, we're the same as you, wrap, wrap their yeah. arms around them yeah. and we can help each other. Yeah. I mean... We're, um, we're putting together competency assessments that can highlight gaps. We're putting them on learning pathways. We're giving them the opportunity to um, take personal development courses that can give them certifications. So we've got the Sales Tribe Academy um, launching shortly, which will give you, once you've done your course, a certificate to say, I'm now... Sales Tribe Social Selling Certified, and I can put that on my LinkedIn profile as a way of differentiating. Then now let's look at this from an entrepreneur's perspective. There's probably people listening who go, um, "Oh, it's okay. I don't need salespeople. I'm going to build a tech platform, and you know, all the dots will connect through uh, the cloud or the internet." Is that is that a good assumption to make, or you, or is that not good? Well, look at what Atlassian's done, right? Those two guys started that business in 2002 with the idea that they wouldn't have any salespeople. But very cleverly, what they did was they turned their entire culture into a sales machine. So no salespeople, but everyone's a salesperson. They're advocates. Correct. The, the, the whole community is Correct. an advocate for the product. Exactly. You're right. So, yeah, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that think, oh, you know, salespeople are expensive, and they are. Um, um, and there are smarter ways of creating a sales playbook that's marketing-led. Uh, with digital marketing and content, all the things that can lower the cost of acquisition. So everybody's trying to go that path. But when it comes to high complex or high value sales products or solutions, you'll still need a person that can go out and communicate that message effectively. Yeah. And so... Um, because then it comes down to how do you integrate the product into my business? How do you support it? Exactly. What happens if it becomes a critical system or... Critical product. Um, exactly. How am I going to get it service, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Now there's still there's still um, a lot of people that need the salesperson. I you know I, I grew up as I said with um, sales at the core of everything I've done, and my belief is that you're either in sales or you're in sales support. You serve the customer, or you serve those who serve the customer. Yes. And the old adage is nothing happens until something is sold. Yeah, yeah. Correct. You're either in sales or you're in sales support, and salesperson is still the conduit to the market and that market needs a message to be taken to that market, uh, the customer. So we've all got to work out how we best get our message out there in this age of just noise. You know, how, do you, how do you get the cut through? Um, and yeah, and, and we talked about this offline as well. You know, you've got 1% of 640 million people building content for LinkedIn. Yeah. When that gets to 10%, yes. How do you then get the cut through? Yes. How do you continue Correct. to cut through? Correct. And and all of that will continue to evolve and emerge, right, at, at speed now. So you've got to be on the journey. Get on it now. Or you're left behind. Get on it yeah. now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So you're on this journey. Mm. Uh, how are you keeping yourself motivated? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> yeah. That's easy. Um, never been more um, excited about what I'm doing career-wise. and Every entrepreneur will say the same thing, I'm sure, when it's your own thing and you're building your own thing. Motivation's simple. Uh, putting aside the fact that we've bootstrapped it and I've got a large debt that I need to, uh, you know, fear, service. Fear's a good motivator. Fear's a good motivator, yes, yeah. no doubt. And um, we're, we're also equally excited about the upside, which is enormous because we're talking about a global market. Yes. You know, from day one, we're a global business. We've got clients now in the UK, US, France, Dubai, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. So... You know, quite amazing for a little Aussie company to have 
that kind of success in a short space of time. Oh, you've done really well. Does my um, original equity offer still stand? Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's, it's probably got to be revised slightly. <laughs> but, uh, yes. <laughs> um, talk, talk to me about, about this success. I mean, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen, have a look. The, the journey's been, um, you know, shooting the lights out, astronomical in my view. Um, hard work, discipline, what, what, what makes you tick? What, what's required? Both hard work and discipline. And um, they do say a little bit of insanity. You know, you've got to see an opportunity and be prepared to, to leap yep. and have a go at it. Yep. So getting over that fear factor, I think, is, is absolutely critical. And again, um, my own personal situation is at 50 years of age, energy levels. You know, you've got to look after yourself. Um, I went back to yoga, <laughs> of all things. Never thought I'd go back to yoga. Um, what time do you do that? Uh, I do that in the evenings, okay. Typically, yeah, um, between sort of five and seven, yeah, and um, decompress, yeah, decompress, quiet time, and then you know sleep well the following or, or that night, and then the following day feeling fantastic, fantastic. So mm. healthy body, healthy mind, exactly. Um, this is not groundbreaking stuff. Not it's, it's simple, it's, but getting getting the right frame of mind to actually engage in it yeah. sometimes can be difficult when you're on this. Uh, High pressure, high stress journey. Absolutely. Family and friends, you've got a busy, very busy life, uh, travelling all over the world. Yep. Um, and how do you then try and balance in those aspects of life as well? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm probably failing to some extent as a, a father and husband at the moment because I'm away so much. Um, thankfully, I've got an amazing wife that looks after the four kids um, extremely well. She's, um, she's incredible. So, you know, old story. Um, I can't do what I do without that support um, in the background as well. Sacrifice as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Sacrifice. But we're, we're both, and thankfully, you know, um, Rachel, my wife, bought into the, the vision of what we're trying to do, and she loves it too, so she's excited. And, um, yeah, family and friends are important to have around you. And su sure. supportive. What was, the, what was the plan? You, you said you've accumulated a debt behind this business. Yep. What was the plan if the debt didn't pay off? What, what was the sort of, what was the discussion that you were going to go back and do what? Well, the plan was I would be infinitely better positioned from a knowledge perspective, having done it and failed, if it failed, um, to then go back to a much more senior role inside a US software company. Yeah. So there was always that kind of plan B. I mean, some people will say, don't have a plan B, you know, just make sure plan A works. Well, it's not realistic when you've got four kids running around. No, correct. So there was always that, that fallback position, if you like, the plan B was kind of always there. But look, it's, it's going um, exceptionally well, as you said, and uh, it's exceeded our expectations to this point. So onwards and upwards. Um, quick fire round. Mm. Who is your favourite comedian? Favourite comedian would be Jim Carrey. Tennis player? Roger Federer. Band? Well, that's a hard one because I'm a closet muso myself. Um, I love Foo Fighters. I love U2. Um, there's so many bands to okay. Well, let's ask it two. this way. One CD you can take to the desert island. What is it? Probably U2. Which one? Akhtung? Uh, yeah, Akhtung or Joshua Tree, any of those. I love, I love them all. Yeah. Um, actor? Actor. Oh, Brad Pitt? Fondest childhood memory? I had the best childhood ever, so they were all fond. I grew up on a farm, played a lot of footy and cricket in the country, 
yeah, had an idyllic childhood, so hard to pick one. Great to hear. Um, yeah. Most memorable smell? Smell? I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> Cut grass in the spring. Second time I've heard that. Um, what thing do you wish you had more time for? Um, kids at the moment. Yeah. Who is the person you would most like to have lunch with, dead or alive? Oh, great question. Sounds a bit cliche, but probably Nelson Mandela. Such admiration for that man. Yeah. Incredible. No, I don't think that's cliche. I think that's good. Mm. Um, lastly, anyone listening thinking of starting a business, what advice would you give them? Mm. Test and iterate and validate. Go out and speak to people first before you get too far down the journey because... You know, statistics will show that there are lots of businesses that don't make it. So don't go all in with a minimum lovable product. Go in with a minimum viable product and test and validate. Graham Hawkins, thanks for your time. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for being on Discipline. Pleasure, Tony. Thanks for having me. You'll be satisfied.